Hello, and welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. If you're part of the sailing community in and around California, you've probably heard of Jim Antrim, the naval architect who's often called the Wizard of El Sobrante. I drove up to El Sobrante to meet up with Jim in the charming office built in the backyard of his house. We talked about his work on everything from the America's Cup to the record-breaking trimarand Aotea to rowboats and the scow-bow junk rig Rosie G. Jim's designed record-breaking multi-hulls and mono-hull sailboats as well as popular production boats. He's an expert in composite material engineering and has developed several computer programs used in performance analysis and prediction. And is a frequent racer on the bay. We had a fascinating and fun conversation, so let's jump right in here. Jim, I'd love to start just by having you describe where we are. Uh, well, we're in my uh, little office in El Sobrani, which is building in the backyard of my house in this office for 25 years probably and before that I was uh, working in a bedroom upstairs in the house. <laughs> <laughs> nice to have your own space and that was even pre-COVID. You, uh... <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it, I, is it true that you built most of this yourself? This, this... Uh, no, I had a friend who uh, was a contractor and he built the framing and the foundation as if we can call it that and uh I put up the uh, siding and roof and everything. That's wonderful. And we're surrounded by photos of sailboats, many of which I presume are of your design, Latitude 38 covers. And yeah, all of them uh, are mine. All of them are yours. This is fantastic. Just love it. Well, thank you for inviting me into your space, into your office. I'm excited to talk to you. Let's go back to how you first got into boats and sailing what was the origin uh when i was i think four years old or, or five we moved to a town named nahant in massachusetts it used to be an island connected by a tombolo which is a sandbar on the lee side of an island huh. that forms to to the mainland but in the world war in the wpa project they built a road on top of that sandbar and huh. so, so it's a causeway you drive out to the the town and um anyway it's a beautiful little little uh hometown nice. and um in massachusetts yeah. you said yeah it's kind of a straight across the um, sound from boston and you know in between marblehead and boston okay it juts out from city of lynn Huh. My dad, when he was growing up, had uh, fooled around with small boats, little power boats that he built himself and stuff. And I, I gather he sailed it once or twice. When we moved in Han, he decided he wanted to get a sailboat. So my mom tells a story of loading us for a bunch of little kids. I think it was probably four, maybe five of us at that time. Your brothers and sisters? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've... Uh, well, now I have four brothers and two sisters. Okay. 
uh, but I'm, I'm the second. She asked, well, do you know how to sail? And he says, oh, sure. You know, so we <laughs> piled into this boat and scared my mother to death. Then later he he bought a 17-foot uh, lapstrake boat. He wrote a story about uh, uh, the first trip that he and I did together on that boat. My memory of that was he asked me if I wanted to do this sail with him was from Cape Ann to bring the boat down to Nahant. He wanted to do it on that Sunday, that following weekend. Well, my dad at that time was not a churchgoer, but, you know, my mom and the rest of us had been raised Catholics, so, you know, it's a mortal sin to miss Mass on <laughs> on, on Sunday. Sure. So, so I sort of agonized over this decision. Do I want to live in hell for eternity, or, or do I want to go sailing with Dad? So, <laughs> so I, two or three days later, I'm going sailing. So, yeah. It was worth it. Yeah. How old were you? Six or seven. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. So that makes sense. You're weighing these these big questions yeah. in your head. And how did the trip turn out? Well, the the story goes that uh, the boat was leaking like crazy, and you know every time he would tack, the boat would twist with its lapstrake construction open up the seams and the water come pouring in. Wow. So, so he said one of us had to steer while the other was bailing with a bucket the entire trip. And uh, we took turns and it all worked out great. So, yeah. <laughs> Didn't scare you off from sailing. No. No. Yeah. Did you catch hell from your mother from missing mass? No, no, I don't remember any grief about that. <laughs> <laughs> My dad had that boat and he eventually built a little house on it. And then later he bought a uh, boat called an Adventurer, which is another wooden mm-hmm. Carville plank boat that uh, we cruised around New England on a lot. What What are some of your memories from sailing? What do you think it was that kind of hooked you? I really loved the cruising, you know, and the wandering around on the ocean and yeah. going into little ports. And you know, it's just such so wonderful adventure. And, uh, you know, being at sea has always fascinated me. I don't know, I'm drawn to it. Like the uh, Jimmy Buffett line about mother, mother in the ocean. And then later Dad bought this uh, little plywood sailboat for us, a nine-footer called a turnabout. And my brother and I started sailing that, racing that in the town. After a while, uh, I got this idea of taking the little boats over to the Boston Islands, which were deserted. Ah. You know, former sort of couple of them were former uh, army installations, and so there's cool tunnels and everything. And so I'd get a few of the kids in town and a couple little boats, and we'd sail over there and spend the night on them, have a wild time. Ah, talk about adventure! <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Do you ever get yourself into trouble? We had to hide from the cops. I remember once, uh, they were <laughs> shining their lights from the shore or something, yeah, from the on us on shore. Were you drawing boats as a kid? Did you like to, were you thinking about the design? I, I, I was. I did, in fact, uh, I remember I was frustrated at one point that there was no place to bring my toys on, on, the, <laughs> on, the, on a boat. Uh, so I drew this 
arrangement plan of a little of a sailboat with a with a playroom in it. You know, <laughs> I call that my design number one. I mean, we have to. I'm gonna have to be careful that my daughters don't hear this interview, or they're gonna hire you to uh, <laughs> design <laughs> redesign our boat. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's amazing. So you were already thinking about that. How can I, how can I make this boat more fit me more? Yeah. Did that continue? Did you say? Did did you start? You know, as you got older, like scribbling out bigger boats, or I guess what happened when I was in seventh grade, uh, the teacher had us do a a report that was, "What am I going to do when I grow up? My mm-hmm. career." Yeah. And so that was the first time I remember thinking about. Well, I guess I do remember wanting to be a clown earlier when I was like five. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's funny because just this morning my daughter said, I want to see pictures of clowns. I want to be a clown. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, uh, I, so I, you know, forced us to uh, think about what we wanted to do as a career. And uh, I, I decided I was so I wrote the report on being an aeronautical engineer. Ah. Not quite sure where that came from, although my dad was kind of in that field what did he do well he was a mechanical engineer and uh he did some work on the x-15 mm-hmm. you know for a supersonic plane and uh that was the one chuck yeager broke the sound yeah, with yeah yeah and um and then he later on worked for a company called american science and engineering which he was the chief engineer there and they um, were they were founded by the company. Who, I mean, the man who discovered X-ray stars. So they huh. would make these X-ray telescopes and launch them up into space. So. Uh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. So space was. And the airplanes were certainly yeah. In mind. And then he had been a pilot in World War Two and mm-hmm. had a plane when I was little. Unfortunately, too too young to remember flying yeah. in it, but. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, so I guess that's where I thought about designing airplanes. And um, then about a year later, I, you know, I was out sailing, and I'm thinking, this is fun. Huh? I want to, you know, this is re- what I really love to do. I, I want to design boats. <laughs> so my dad came home a few days later, and it turns out that's called a naval architect. So yeah. That is very cool that you're able to trace that thought in the seventh grade and that realization in the eighth grade to where you are today so what was the next step how did you go about uh getting the skills when it came time to go to college i applied to every place that um, had naval architecture degrees which which was three places (laughs) at that time now there's They've shifted, but uh, there's University of Michigan is one, and MIT and Webb Institute of Naval Architecture, which is where I finally ended up going. And that's a tiny school because it teaches nothing but uh, naval architecture oh, wow. and marine engineering. Okay. And where is that located? It's in uh, Glen Cove, New York, mm-hmm. on Long Island. Sure. Once you got there, did you have a focus I think one of the things when I was looking at everything you've designed over your career, what's so wonderful is how eclectic uh, yeah. it is. At Webb, they, there's really no electives. It's, it's fixed. 99% of the people are going there to learn how to design ships. 
But, you know, the basics are there. The same concepts pretty much go into a sailboat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was uh, on the sailing team and so on, you know. Yeah. Did a lot of racing there in college. How important is it being out there on the water, being a sailor for doing sailboat design? Obviously, it, it has to inform it. Yeah, I, I think it's super critical. You know, you just have a sense of all kinds of things, you know, how the boat moves through the water and the human engineering of designing a layout of, you know, interior and cockpit layout and things like that. I don't know, know how you could possibly design a sailboat without being pretty good at sailing. Yeah, yeah. So you're sailing all the way through this, this time. Yeah. Spending as much time as you can on the water. Is that mostly racing or is that? Uh, yeah, mostly racing in dinghies. Okay. Uh, when I was sophomore year of high school, I'd say my dad got me a Mercury, Cape Cod Mercury, which uh-huh. is a 15-foot S&S design, you know, an open cockpit keel boat. So I raced that, got a lot better at it when I was sailing in college and won the Nationals uh, a couple of years uh-huh. there. I was interested in working for Britain Chance because uh-huh. he was nearby the school, actually, I went to. I uh, particularly liked his unusual and apparently sort of scientific approach to design. Right. And the another uh, designer that I greatly admired was Dick Carter. So Dick Carter uh, designed a lot of really cool boats, Red Rooster and, you know. Um, and uh, so, you know, at Webb you work, um, there, you know, there's two semesters, but in between the two semesters in the wintertime there's a winter work period. Okay. So your your freshman year, you work in a shipyard. So I worked in San Pedro, Todd Shipyards. And then your sophomore year, you work on a ship. So I, I got to go on a ship from New York down through the Panama Canal and down to Valparaiso, Chile and back. Wow. That's fascinating. So it's back to that actual hands-on. Yeah. Not You're not interning at a, at a design shop. You're actually on yeah. board. Well, yeah, and then in, in your junior and senior year, you do intern in a design shop. Okay. So one of those years, I I decided to, to apply to Dick Carter. I wonder where Dick Carter's office is. So I looked him up online. Or No, there wasn't anyone. <laughs> yeah, I looked I him up. Say. Yeah. And Yellow it, pages. It turns <laughs> out Dick Carter's lived in his office was in Nahant. I didn't even know about it. But he was literally, you know, like four blocks away from my mom and dad's house on the same, on the main street in town. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I was completely blown away by that. But anyway, so I went to work for Dick Carter for uh, for that work period. So to talk about that application process, did you end up going over there and knocking on the door or... No, I, I wrote to him and, uh, you know, I offered work for free or work for whatever... He finally offered me 50 bucks a week, so which was below minimum wage at that time even. You know. Yeah. But, but I was happy to do it. It was really exciting. His office was uh, this lookout tower from World War II 
you know, so these rooms that were sort of like 12 by 12 or 15 by 15, maybe five floors, you know, we'd look out over the water there and uh, you know, out through this sort of slot window and remember seeing whales coming up one day and uh, stuff like that. Really spectacular. Sounds like inspirational views for the yeah. work. Yeah, and we worked on some really cool boats there. One, one of them was uh, Vendredi Trays. It was a 130-foot boat for the Ostar race. Mm. And what aspects were you working on? Do you remember? I did a lot of just grunt work, like taking the drawings into the town to get them blueprinted. But, uh-huh. but I did, you know, I remember drawing uh, the bathroom layout, you know, the head layout in, uh-huh. in a like a 32-foot production boat. Yeah, I did a lot of lot of drafting and measuring offsets and things like that. You talk about dr- the drafting. How important was being able to draw? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at your, your, your computer and the, and the CAD setup there, and obviously a lot of it's digital now. But yeah. were you doing drawings by hand? Was that something that you enjoyed? Yeah, I designed on pencil and paper until like 1990. Mm-hmm. And then uh, CAD started coming in. And how has that changed for you? The wonderful thing about it is, my eyesight used to be just perfect, yeah. know, from like the end of my nose to infinity. <laughs> and uh, eventually, uh, you know, it starts to go, and you, you know, so that helps a lot with, you know, really good eyesight helps a lot with pencil drawing. Uh-huh. And accuracy of measuring the offsets off the lion's plan and things like that. I, I enjoyed the pencil drawing, but now that I'm used to CAD, it's it's pretty wonderful in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. A whole line of question there that I would love to get into because you've been instrumental in advancing technology in terms of boat design. As I understand, you began writing some Fortran programs and have written multiple programs for design how has that or what has it allowed i guess is the question that it didn't before repetitive study Hmm. like when i worked at chance's office we had a you know what's now called a vpp velocity prediction program I, i i'm pretty sure he had the very first program that would predict the speed of a boat on various points of sail and, uh, you know, that was the kind of innovation stuff that Brit was good at. He was always pushing the envelope and trying to be more scientific than the usual yacht designer. Yeah. That was one of my jobs there, was running the that program and, and analyzing, you know, the performance of the boats. I, I was in charge of preliminary design when I was there. It was a Brit who you were working, who worked on the America's Cup boat yeah. for Ted Turner? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mariner. And and was trying some new technology there as well. Yeah, well, the uh, the 12 meters are so damn heavy uh-huh. that it's, it's basically impossible to bring the end of the boat together without the flow separating. Uh-huh. For example, S&S designed uh, Valiant, the year uh, after Intrepid 67, it had this full bustle and a little rudder behind the bustle. The rudder was in separated flow the entire time. So so I went sailing on that thing, and literally you could turn the rudder 
15 degrees either side and it wouldn't do a damn thing <laughs> and you'd finally feel the trailing edge sort of hit the water and start to turn the boat so it's incredible to me that the boat was like steered by the mainsail trimmer more than anything else i think wow so i don't know it must have taken him a long time to dial that in but so anyway i think that's the logic that brit had of extending the lines as far back as you could and then cutting it off square it's sort of a defined separation point but it didn't work very damn well <laughs> it worked great in the towing tank and I, I think that's because the towing tank locks the model in at a very specific speed and the flow has a chance to sort of stabilize itself where on real life you'd see the boat trying to accelerate and big swirls coming off on each mm-hmm. side and you know it's the acceleration was terrible it was oh. almost almost worse than the uh, overall boat speed was a bigger problem but the other problem with mariner was you know the trend had been to keep making the boats longer because uh, you know potential speed in high winds is better that way. So the the twelve meter rule basically, as you make the boat longer, it has to be heavier, and the sail plan gets smaller. So I think Mariner was just too far in that direction. It was very heavy and long, and not enough sail area. So even after we cut off the transom and put a normal stern on it, it still was a slow boat. <laughs> Ted Turner's infamous quote about it was, "Yeah, even a turd is tapered at both ends." <laughs> That's <laughs> even a turd is tapered at both ends. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't make it fast necessarily. Now, so that brings a question to my head: of you were talking about the difference between the tow tank and the reality with technology, with modeling, uh, digital modeling. Are you able? to better close the gap between modeling and reality? Or are there still surprises? Yeah, especially these days. Um, it's almost the model tank stuff has almost disappeared, and it's, you know, you can do things with finite element and CFD. Computational uh, fluid dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. But that's really the wonderful parts of, you know, the software is VPP is a really good example of it where you can do repetitive studies. I want to try, you know, increasing the sail area and see what happens or, you know, make the uh, keel bigger or smaller or whatever you want to do. Yeah. You would think it would be a lot faster to draw with CAD, but in fact we used to crank out designs like at Mull's office. Hmm. You know, we'd have like, he, he would, he would, he made a table of how long it should take to do each kind of drawing. It'd be like a day and a half for a deck plan, and a, you know, two days for a layout. And and I swear it takes me five times as long now. And I suppose it's just because I, you know, repetitive, repetitively working on it and trying to refine it. And maybe I'm more anal than Brit. I mean, than Gary Mull was. Uh huh. One thing that you alluded to before was designing two racing rules. And I think, if I'm right, you did a whole paper about IOR. Yeah, I did a study. You know, at at Webb, when you graduate, you have to do a thesis. And uh, my thesis was a uh, mathematical study of the IOR rule. You know, I created a sort of a base sailboat 
and would scale the beam, you know, repetitive, you know, incrementally and the, the depth and uh, all kinds of different ratios. I would analyze how it affected the rating. That was my thesis project. Well, it sounds like it was a good project because I would imagine a lot of your work in the future was designing two specifications to certain yeah. rating rules. Yeah, that IOR rule was was predominant from when I worked at Dick Carter's uh, as an apprentice in 1971, I guess. You know, IOR Mark II and was only about a year or two old then. And that was the predominant race rule all the way through the four years I worked at Chance's office and three more at Gary Mull's office. So what are the challenges of that? Well, the interesting thing about IOR and rules of that day is there were formulas that were published, you know, so you could play with it, as I did with, with my thesis. Like, for example, at Chance's office, we were doing uh, some daggerboard boats. I'm trying to remember exactly what, what the first boat was, but I've noticed there's this break in the rule where you can increase the draft of your boat if the board is lighter than such and such. Oh. So we went to a all internal ballast boat with a dagger board and it had, you know, about two feet more draft than all the other one tonners and it won the one ton cup. <laughs> it's named Resolute Salmon. So that was uh development of you know, my noticing this little weirdness in the formula there. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. I read a fascinating article recently about how IOR impacted yacht design and safety. I'm I'm curious what your what your take on yeah, how the rules impacted safety. There was a uh, big credit in there for you know CGF center of gravity factor, you know, essentially the higher <laughs> the tippier the boat was the faster, you know, slower it would rate. <laughs> yeah, uh, which makes sense, but I think it was too much and you know people carried that to the nth degree. So, so like that Resolute Sam and the one tenor I mentioned was well it wasn't a really tippy boat because it was wide but um you know certainly all of the ballast being inboard you can imagine is uh not the safest thing you could do. Right. Right. And so the boats IOR boats for a long time then people were pinching the sterns to make the rating go down. So the boats ended up being sort of fat and like a pumpkin seed or something. And Another aspect that I wanted to ask you about, because you've been very involved over the years, is material technology. Talk about how new materials, carbon, other materials have influenced design over the years. And You know, I, I've thought about that, you know, lots of times over the years. And imagine if you had to go back to... The days of Columbus. Yeah. You haven't got anything but like hemp to make the shrouds and, you know, lumber to make the hull. And so, you know, a modern designer go would go back and just, what the hell am I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's... Make a boat from this? <laughs> what? <laughs> you got to be kidding. At least give me a, you know, strand of, uh, you know, stainless steel rigging. For, you know, so... Um, 
I think the materials have really driven the evolution of sailboat design more than anything else. You know, so composites and carbon fiber is, you know, a phenomenal material. That's that sort of started coming into play, you know, in the years I worked at Gary Mull's office from like 76 to 79. Carbon rudder posts started getting built and things like that. You know, in my own career, so I, once I went on my own, the pickings were pretty slim, you know, but a friend of mine was retiring from a company called Orcon, he was a salesman there, and Orcon was the first manufacturer of unidirectional materials. They were down in uh, Union City. Okay. They still are, really. Unidirectional materials means what? Uh, all the fibers are laid uh, are in the same direction. Okay. So you can uh, make a load path and lay a strip of carbon that, in that direction or something like that. Got it. But you can build a whole boat out of unis piled up in different directions, you know, and tailor the laminate. They had a service because it was a new material. They, you know, they, were, they made unidirectional carbon and Kevlar and S-glass. So since those were new materials to the whole, you know, boat building world, they offered a service where we would do engineering for people. So they hired me when this other guy retired, uh, or not retired, but left Oricon, he suggested that they bring me in to be this engineering guy. Because of that, I wrote a program to analyze composite laminates. Essentially learned how to do composite engineering by writing that program and running it. You know, it was, Very it was cool. kind of amazing. It amazed me that here I wrote this thing and I'm learning how to do better laminates by running my own program, you know, and then I still use that today, even though it's a DOS-based program. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I haven't taken the time to rewrite it yet. No, uh, well, I <laughs> tried to at one point to turn it into a Windows-based thing, but uh, unsuccessful. <laughs> well, as long as you can use the original, yeah. you're good, right? Yeah. So what did that lead you to? I, I understand. Didn't you do some of that work for America's Cup? Yeah, so I, I've sort of, be, from that, I've sort of become a composite expert, and you know, I was hired by America Cubed in, in their first effort to work on the structural design team, the engineering team. Is that mostly about lightweighting? What kind of engineering are you doing with the material science in terms of obviously you need a strong structure in yeah. different different ways in different places, but is that for, for an America's Cup boat, I would imagine, just keeping it as light as possible? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of the big main things about composites, you know, sandwich construction is a huge benefit because you separate the skins Mm. by some distance by a very light material and you know this essentially it's like making an i-beam you know the flanges of the beam or the skins of the oh okay hull. interesting yeah and uh, the core is represents it is the shear web you know so yeah. that's very much what sandwich construction is like conceptually and then the other part of composites is orienting the fibers generally most materials you buy are either uh, woven 090 or stitched 090 and plus minus 45 or some are triaxials and mm -hmm. so a lot of it is just orienting 
getting the fibers oriented in the direction that's most efficient, carry the loads. It, it's <clears throat> really knowing what the loads, what direction the loads are going to be at that point. Yeah. Or for that structure. Yeah, for example, I, I wrote an article many years ago about, called it Put on a Black Top Hat. And, <laughs> and the idea was, you know, what we call hat sections in a, in a boat is, you know, it's sort of a upside down C, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the point of this article is you put carbon in the top of the hat. So you have the whole shell on one side, that's the brim of the hat, and the, okay. uh, put the carbon in the top and it balances the big loads in the skin and you can make the thing a heck of a lot lighter by hmm. doing that because the carbon's so efficient, stiff, that it balances the loads out in, that, in the hat section. Interesting. What are some of the... Um exciting advances that you see right now on the horizon in terms of material science? You know, there's nothing really quite as breakthroughy as carbon was. Yeah. Like, you know, there's a lot of really great fibers like spectra and you know, dyneema is just another form of spectra. That's been just unbelievable in how much lighter the ropes have gotten and and how you can make rigging out of it, it's incredible stuff. Yeah. Floats. The only thing it doesn't do very well is stick to resins. <laughs> and what advantage would that, if it did? Well, if it did, then you could build hulls out of it. Yeah, and they do actually, uh, it's called plasma treating. You can you put this uh, surface coat on the, on the spectra that it makes it stick to the resin better. But... Does that have advantages over carbon? Well, it does because it's actually lighter than carbon. Wow. I mean, Kevlar is sort of like that, too. Car- uh, Kevlar uh, doesn't stick all that well either, which is part of what makes it so great in collision survivability. Uh-huh. Kevlar and Spectre are sort of similar in that they really super high tensile strengths and low density but neither one of them sticks all that well to the resin. To the resin, so yeah. Hard to make holes out of. Interesting. Yeah. Are people working on that? Obviously, you said that, that there are ways to do yeah, it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of expensive. Hard work know, around. Yeah. Hard to work. Fascinating. Yeah, when I call out Kevlar, builders hate me because it's such a pain in the ass to work with. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's something that you have to think about. You can't just think about it in terms of the abstract of, wow, this material is really going to be fantastic. Yeah. How does it actually go into production? Yeah. Where is that line? You obviously want to push boundaries, but you don't want to make it impossible to make. Right. It's important to work with the builder, find out what their process is, and not push them into a process they're uncomfortable with. But at the same time, show them the wisdom of doing a different material or something like that. Yeah. So that's that's a balance of part of the job is... uh, working with the people you're designing for and sure. who's going to build it, you know. I'm really excited to talk about some specific projects that you've had over the years. Are there any builders that who you really love working with because they're just open to these ideas of like, okay, well, let's try it. Yeah. Let's see. Well, I've done a tremendous amount of work with Cree Partridges really recently in, uh, at Berkeley Marine Center. They've built, uh, the first one they built was XL. It's, the wall over there, uh-huh. and uh, 
then uh, rapid transit, it's a 49-foot uh, canting keel boat for Cree's younger brother, Jim. Is that the one that's on the hard right now at Burton yeah, Marine Center? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Red, red boat. Yes. Yeah. I stopped underneath it the other day with my daughters, and I said, look at that keel. You see that? It can go back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't quite understand. But <laughs> yeah, and then uh, they built uh, California Condor, my Class 40, and... Uh-huh. Uh, Rosie G, mm-hmm. three or or four uh, of these uh, rowboats for the ladies of the lake. That's a funny story. That uh, oh, tell us about that. Who Creek, are the ladies of the lake? Creek kept telling me we've got to design this. We've got to design this whale boat for this women's rowing club on Lake Merritt. And I said, "Oh, great!" You know, so he mentioned it several times, and uh-huh. so I'm picturing the whale boats were very fine and you know rather tippy because they you know they had to be towed at great speeds through the water (laughs) right going for a sleigh ride so i was picturing this quite slender you know rowboat then we went to lunch with the ladies of the lake and well it turns out the ladies of the lake are 65 to 80 years old (laughs) and uh We're looking for a little more stable platform. Wonderful group of ladies. But, you know, we went there and they were showing, well, you know, usually women have to leave when when the boat gets too tippy that they can't climb into it. You know, it's all of a sudden the shift in my head of what the boat looks like. You know, just sort of a wider version. But uh, that was a tremendous amount of fun. They They were really fun. You know, when we launched the first one, they were supposed to come meet us, uh, you know, at noon or something. And so we're, Korean and I are standing there around there waiting. And you start hearing this bagpipe. <laughs> so then around the corner into the boatyard come marching all these ladies, you know, dressed up in their, their little sailor's <laughs> uniforms. And the one in the front's playing a bagpipe. Oh, how it wonderful. Was, it was just awesome. that's great another unusual boat that i saw at the berkeley marine center that you worked on was chubby girl oh yeah and i actually um had the gentleman on who was going to attempt wilbur spall thank you uh wilbur had an original design that wasn't working out so well for him he was going to take this very small boat to hawaii and you you jumped in and kind of redirected the design i understand yeah he had he had built a you know boat out of plywood and you know sort of uh home depot materials that he designed himself and uh, he took it to cammy first and cammy says that looks more stable upside down than right side up <laughs> you, you got to talk to jim so wilbur came to me and you know we eventually added some big foam chunks on the side to, to stabilize it and stuff, but it, it was still sort of painfully slow mm-hmm. to the point where I, I took it out sailing once. You know, it was blowing 10 or 12 knots there outside of the Berkeley Marina, and I could not tell if the boat was moving. Oh, no. <laughs> it was <laughs> it's not a good sign. I'm looking over the side trying to look for a wake, and I'm looking at the you know range on the shore, and it was just so slow. And, uh, you know, Wilbur had been complaining about having a hard time keeping it on course. But, you know, I think if, if you can't, if you're not moving through the water, your foils don't work very well. So Right. After that sale, he and I were talking. Is what would it cost to 
build a new boat. And so I'm sort of, my head's sort of spinning, thinking about, oh, my God, custom tooling and blah, 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 you know, and I'm sort of thinking about it, and Cree walked over, and what if we take that dinghy mold you, we just, for that dinghy we just designed and we'll build two of them, one, and put one on top of the other. Like a clamshell. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we ended up doing. <laughs> I love yeah. Cree's attitude, can-do yeah. attitude, right? Yeah, and Wilbur's keel uh, was an old dagger board off the bottom of rapid transit. We cut a section of that off, and <laughs> I had him pour some lead to the shape. Something like s- 10 feet? It was 9 feet. 9 yeah. feet, okay. Yeah, his, Wilbur's first boat was 8 feet, but this dinghy I had designed happened to be 9 feet long, so... Wow. Rather than cut it off, we just use the whole mold length. And Have you talked to him? Do you know if he's going to attempt it again? Yeah, actually, I just heard from Wilbur a couple of weeks ago, and he's he wrote to me saying, I'm, I'm thinking about doing it again, you know. And Great. One of the big problems he had was he has uh, severe COPD. We kept trying to talk him out of taking the, the outboard and you know, put some oars on the boat or a, a sculling oar. Uh-huh you know, and save a bunch of weight and all the danger of having gasoline and everything else. Yeah. And he says, I got winded walking across the yeah. boat yard here. It's just not up, up. He's not up for it. Yeah. So, so he says recently he's gone to a doctor and had all his problems fixed. I don't quite know oh. how he did that, but so he's thinking about doing the attempt again, which, which is great, you know, cause it kills me because he didn't yeah. succeed the first time. And, uh, with just a bit more preparation, it would have been fine, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd love to see him out there. I, we, we were out sailing when he, he took off the first time, and we circled him once and waved him off, and I was really disheartened to hear that he had to retreat. So that's great news. I hope, to, yeah, I hope yeah. he does. Another boat. We've had Barry Spanier on the show. You mentioned the Rosie G., and I hope to have Barry again on the show soon because last time I talked to him, it was – an idea. The boat was only on paper. Oh, um, really? Yeah. And um, and and just recently, he he was able to to give me a tour of her uh, nearing completion. I don't know when he's planning to splash. But, yeah, uh, I keep asking him, but he doesn't <laughs> seem to want to <laughs> pin it down. But, uh, but he's working good. hard, and it's a fascinating boat. I mean, he's a a sail designer, and he worked with you. I, I guess, tell me a little bit about it. I, did he come to you with this concept? He did. Actually, he came to me, I think, three times, but... <laughs> did you say no the first two? No, no. <laughs> you know, he just was talking about... I remember one of them was he was going to have a boat powered by a kite. So we just talked about that idea, and I didn't hear from him again. There was, I think there was two of those contacts, and then he came again with this latest concept. The main features were the scow bow and the junk rig. Yeah. Yeah, he came to me with uh, you know, pretty detailed sketches. It looks largely like uh, what he drew, you know, a big uh, house. He wanted to have the cockpit on the same level as the main salon so you can walk straight through and you know sort of open the doors up and it's a big social space yeah there was sort of this mysterious uh cargo hold thing in the middle which 
I think he just wanted to have versatility. You know, he was, you know maybe it's a sewing uh, loft as I travel, or I could carry stuff around, or you know, we could quick and quickly convert it to a guest cabin or whatever. Uh-huh. It's an unusual boat and kind of an unusual layout. It's really pretty. You know, it's kind of unusual looking, but it's rather a pretty boat. And not only pretty, she is pretty in a very unusual way. Yeah. And she'll certainly turn heads with a junk rig when she's yeah. when she's in the water. But it the layout, and it's hard to know because it's not completely finished, but it feels very open. It feels yeah. much different than traditional monohulls. Yeah, and it's it feels huge. Yeah. You know, it's a 42-foot boat, but, you know, it feels like a 55-foot okay. boat yeah, or something. Yeah, it does. It does. Barry and Samantha are doing a fabulous job finishing it up. Essentially, BMC built, you know, the hull deck, you know, the, all the big structural parts. Yeah. Just the detailing and the little artistic ideas, and, you know, it's really nice. I'm yeah. so happy with the work that he's doing on it. What are some of the most memorable projects for you? I, I know probably asking you about your favorites is like asking about favorite children, but are there any that really stand out for you that you look back on and say, I'm really proud yeah. of that? Well, my 40-foot trimaran Aotea was, uh, I think, really the one that got my name out there. Mm-hmm. And that boat was so fun and so fast. And uh, What's the origin story of Aotea? Peter Hogg is the owner. He had a uh, Dick Newick catamaran design called uh, Tainui. And uh, that was a 40-foot boat. He decided he wanted a new boat and was asking around, and uh, a friend of mine, Dan Newland, recommended that he talk to me. So I did a preliminary design for him. I think he got one from somebody else and really liked mine. I did a lot of, had a lot of different ideas that I explored, and I wrote a technical paper about it for the SNAMI, the Society of Naval Architects and Marine Engineers. And, you know, I had uh, foils in the hulls as one idea, and uh-huh. Stan Honey once said, you would have been the first boat to have <laughs> trimaran to have foils in the hulls. A little ahead of your time. <laughs> yeah, right. And, um, but, you know, I we didn't do it because I thought, you know, in single-handing, it's too much work. You're raising and lowering these things all the time. And mm-hmm. uh, So that was part of the profile, uh, uh, a multi-hull to single hand yeah yeah definitely um single hand and double handing pretty much what it did the whole time but um, what were some of the other ideas you were playing with oh i experimented with the idea of a uh, forward cross tube which was sort of a wing that would uh, you know get aerodynamic lift and reduce pitching by you know damping when you go over a wave and you know, I abandoned that idea, but um, I can't remember what else. Had yeah. you done many multi-hulls before that? You know, I had never designed or even sailed on a multi-hull. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell him that. I love it. <laughs> but, but, you know, I spent a lot of time studying the cool boats that were being raced and built in Europe. Yeah. And, you know, France particularly is... A, Sure, a wonderful hotbed of, yeah. Spent a lot of time studying those, and, you know, it had some unusual ideas that I 
came up with like to reduce the expense of building the yamas we built a mold for half of a hull mm-hmm. you know the bottom and top half so one mold could build one half mold could build all you know both amas oh like we were talking about yeah. with the chubby girl before where you yeah saying. so <laughs> I don't know, you can that's that's Eritia's model hanging oh there. okay so you can see the top and bottom and left and right sides of the hull yeah are symmetric. they're more a little more uh looks a little more like a torpedo than your yeah. traditional yeah right uh alma and then uh the builder mark Ginesty, came up with the idea of using flat panels in the side of the main hull so uh, we did that too, so it's good, you know. It you can sort of hard to tell, but the the sides were laid up on a flat table and then bent into place. Huh. I'm going back and forth here between the model hanging over my head and the and the photo on the wall of yeah. her under sail. She's gorgeous. Yeah, and the boat was just so much fun to sail. And what what length? Forty feet. Forty feet. Okay. Well, I'll tell you the story of, of the launching. Yeah. You know, the boat was built up in Novato in this kind of business section, kind of a long way from the water road-wise. But Peter was doing some work with a helicopter company at the time, and <laughs> and he had it launched by helicopter. So, <laughs> way to make an entrance. Yeah, so, uh, so we're standing there in the parking lot. The boat's out in the middle of the parking lot, and the... They lower the hook down, and you know the guys giving little finger signals to the up to the helicopter is unbelievable. You know, it's like they'd lower the hook another inch. (laughs) But anyway, they they picked it up, you know, and they had a load cell on the thing, and the boat was supposed to weigh forty six hundred pounds. Picked it up, and you know we rated it up. How how much did it weigh? And And they came back with. 5,800 pounds or 6,100 pounds, and I went, oh, my God, you know, my <laughs> I was practically sick to my stomach. So, so they flew it away and uh, dropped it in the water over by Petaluma and, you know, motored it around. And so I'm waiting for them at Corinthian Yacht Club for the boat to arrive, expecting to be sitting really low in the water and, you know, desperately depressed. <laughs> so it comes around the corner, and it's looking... It's pretty much on its lines. Well, as it turns out, not only did they, you know, look at the weight when they were accelerating up, but, you know, the big trimaran is in the downwash of all the... uh, Oh, sure. (laughs) Yeah. The The helicopter's downwash pushing it towards the ground. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that must have been an agonizing couple of hours. It was was horrible. (laughs) The first sails were... You know, the tired sails off of Tainui, and they're all stretched out and, you know, didn't trim right. And it, but we took off it across the bay and we're doing like 20 knots immediately. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, the boat would sail at steady 20 knots across the bay all the time, you know, like 20, 21, 21 and a half, 22, 20, you know. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like yeah, a blast. So much fun. Yeah. And where is Antoine now? Aotea, we, Aotea, yeah, we pitch pulled it in the uh, double-handed Verilons race, and uh, you know Peter and I were were leading the race. Really weird day with these uh, sort of East Coast type squalls coming through, and uh, we're the only boat around the island 
our spinnaker up going along in like 17 knots and I see this big long dark cloud straight line cloud with this kind of cresting wave under it and I said to Peter look at this thing we're going to catch this wave and ride it all the way to the gate so the wind went from like 17 to you know people going up wind reported some of them reported 50 knots through wind it was just like bang the last thing I remember was shoving the spinker sheet toward the winch and the, and then the next thing I know we're balancing on our nose rolling slowly over so the boat turned upside down and we got picked up by the Coast Guard but um, we went out I think three different times you know boat was we went flew out the next day with a small plane trying to find it too rough it's hard to see the boat upside down and it was spotted a couple more times by various people and we'd go out and fly around couldn't find it and uh, eventually it sailed upside down by itself to uh, atoll over in the <laughs> near truck island in the Marquesas. really okay yeah, yeah. and at the time uh, peter's partner shama got a call from the coast guard and he said, did you lose a boat <laughs> this boat's been reported uh floating into the atoll over there and um Peter did it wash oh go ahead Sorry. yeah yeah it washed into this atoll took the cabin off i guess going across the reef and mm. one of the hulls broke off somewhere along the way but uh, peter at the time was racing on with steve fawcett over to Japan. On his way back, he stopped and went out to the island and saw his old boat and got some of the stuff off it. Oh, gosh. Donated his, uh, you know, the uh, radio receiver to the people on the island because they had no way of contacting, you know, they had no phones or anything. A radio receiver that was still functional? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the. Uh, I mean, I guess if it was upside the tuner, down. The SSB tuner. The tuner. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could have still been out of the water. Yeah. In the cabin, if the thing yeah. was just floating upside down, yeah. interesting. So oh, that was a sad that's a shame. Aotea, but you know, it, we set practically every course record in the Bay Area. You know, we had the double-handed Farallon record for one year. I thought, that, you know, the conditions were so great. I thought this this is going to stay forever. You know, who beat you? Well, the next year was even better conditions. It was southerly again, and, you know, it was a fetch out and back both times, but the second time there was a new southerly, flat water, and uh, Tom Blackallers, you uh, know, he was gone, but his his catamaran beat Aotea okay. that, that year, uh, broke our record. But, you know, <laughs> Peter still has the uh, single-handed San Francisco to Japan record, and uh, he had the double, I mean, the single-handed record to Hawaii until yeah, Fawcett broke that with Lakota, the 60-footer. It must be special to to do racing on a boat that you've designed. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's wonderful, yeah. You know it so intimately, I yeah. would imagine. Yeah, and, you know, to get experience, what you imagined, you know, in your head it would be like, best part of the job. <laughs> yeah. Do you still race a lot on the bay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just recently uh, I designed this pedal-powered boat. Uh-huh. It's a 24-foot uh, pedal-powered boat for a guy who's going to 
you know, explore the coast of North America, and he wants to go through the Northwest Passage and all this stuff. And uh, wow. anyway, so that was just finished, and we did a rollover test there at Berkeley Marine, and boy, the thing we sort of slowly rolled it up to 180 degrees, and boy, it like snap rolled back to upright. <laughs> is that more like a kayak shape, or what is the pedal? Yeah, it, it sort of it looks so, sort of like an ocean rowboat. Okay, yeah. Except without a cockpit, because he pedals from down below. Oh, okay. And yeah, it, I might have so, yeah. heard about this before, but that's and, fascinating. Uh, so, you know, that was just fun, you know, doing that and then, you know, pedaling the boat around and experiencing that. Yeah. yeah. So he's now got it down in West Point Marina. You've done more multi-hulls. Do you have a preference, multi-hulls or mono-hulls in terms of designing or sailing? You know, I, I really miss sailing the trimarans. I, I don't... They're not sort of around anymore. Yeah. Although my 30-footer's down in Santa Cruz. I went sailing with him. He's the owner down there. Keeps it up in really good condition and really fun to sail that boat again. We, you know, raced the owner, originally owner, and I double-handed it for several years in the ocean and stuff. Why do you think multi-hulls haven't caught on as much here as in they have in Europe? You know, in terms of the big race boats, you know, like the French have. Right. A lot of that has to do with advertising in France. Yeah, yeah. Just the money that's, yeah. that's there, yeah. People are so excited about the racers. Here you show up for a big race and there's no spectators. Right. <laughs> there, there's not a crowd coming out to see the pack yeah. cup off or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic over there. You know, the entire family from, you know, teenagers to you know, their grandmother are down wandering around the docks looking at these cool boats. It's it's just fabulous. Yeah. Maybe one day here. We'll yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, anything else that we haven't touched on that you want to mention? Just talking about that, Cree and I were trying to get a round-the-world race from San Francisco to San Francisco. We called it SF to SF. We were trying to get that going a number of years ago, but couldn't get the funding we needed to get it off the ground. We had a few people interested. What a fabulous idea. Yeah. You know, all the all the round the world races start from essentially either France or England. Or England, yeah. Yeah. It's been true for the past fifty years. Yeah. Got this idea. Why don't we do it from here? <laughs> Is that still rattling around or do you think that's uh, I'd love for it to come back, but I think going to take somebody else with the motivation and yeah yeah i mean i'd love to be involved but we were also going to build a 60 footer hopefully a few of them for the race for that race so sorry that boat did get built but <laughs> which boat was that that this it was a specialized boat for the race that Korea okay. and I were going to build and so was was the vision that it would be a one design race no, no, but there might be a few of these boats, a few of these 60s, but anybody else could enter. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, I mean, there, there certainly has been a resurgence with the bringing back of the Golden Globe. Yeah. Uh, for its 50th anniversary, and I think they're doing that again. And it seems like there's a growing interest in the Volvo. I guess it's now just the Ocean Race and the Vendee. But... Uh, it's, it takes a lot to get one of these going. Yeah, it really does. It takes the, I think the public enthusiasm has to be there too to 
justify it to a sponsor because all of these things are expensive. Just running the race is, you know, requires somebody to pretty much be on duty all the time and all yeah. the PR and stuff like that and, you know, building the boats and sailing them. Or Well, if yeah. somebody hears this out there and says, that's what I want to do, yeah. how do they find you? <laughs> <laughs> On or the internet, yeah. On the internet, yeah. yeah. yeah fine. So I'll put all the information. Um, or if you want your next boat designed by Jim. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure you have a lot of projects lined up right now, keeping you busy. But yeah, I uh, do. I'm working on three new designs right now and a, you know, a bunch of redesigns. And you know, Cree's uh, boat is getting pretty close to f- launching. And, yeah, Rapid Trans is going through some changes and, uh, you know, Rosie G, ready to launch, and yeah, it's just it's exciting. It is exciting. Um, I mean, I've been really super busy for a long time, but just seems like lately it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, if you want to see a Jim Antrim design, just go to the Berkeley Marine Center yeah, and walk right. around. <laughs> oh, I, I should have mentioned Jim Betts is another of my favorite builders. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, really good guy and fun to work with. And where's he located? He's now in Anacortes, but okay. he built my uh, Open 50, which was originally Convergence and then became Everest Horizontal, raced by Tim Kent in the Around Alone. And uh, he was in Truckee at the time. Uh, wow. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jim. This sure. has really been a pleasure. Thank you. Lots of fun. Well, that's it for this episode. You can read much more about Jim's work at AntrumDesign.com. There's information on all of his boats there, and he also has an article up about his capsize aboard Aotea during the double-handed Farallons race that first appeared in the May 1995 issue of Latitude 38. Thanks for listening. As always, I'm your host, Ben Shaw, and until next time, smooth sailing.